0: Hey folks! Before we get started today, uh, I want to give a shout out to a listener and one of our supporters, and actually one of my oldest friends, uh, Mark Keir, who is uh, at the University of Arizona in the um, uh, in the School of Geography and Development. And uh, he's uh, been listening to to the show, obviously, and he's heard us talk about the core sensor. And uh, he reached out asking to be put in touch with the core folks because he is um, he's working on. Uh, a study that he just got funding for on home thermal security. So that's the uh, the ability of folks, and specifically in, in hot areas in, well, he's in Arizona, uh, to maintain a livable, comfortable temperature inside their homes. Um, and he uh, is going to be potentially using the core sensor uh, to study the core temperature of, of folks in these environments and then draw some conclusions on, um, on uh, thermal security, as he, as he calls it. So this is a really fun example of how something that is, uh, you know, came out of the, the sporting field um, and is now being applied to social science research. So shout out to Mark, uh, thanks for reaching out, and I hope it all, uh, it works out for you.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast.
0: everyone uh joining us today is uh, someone that we've been chatting offline to for quite some time and uh, he actually reached out to us which is always which is always satisfying because we've talked about him on the show and uh, uh, I won't keep you in suspense it is uh Dan bigham of uh, shop for Watts and uh, a whole other number of hats uh, he was with uh Hugh Watt bike and then the um, Dan Danish Federation yeah, Danish Federation and then also uh, Canyon Shram and jumbo Visma as well Oh, awesome! Okay, so Dan's uh, Dan reached out because he is um, put working on a an hour record attempt, um, and I'll let him talk about specifically which of the records he's going to be chasing. But the reason that this is such an interesting topic for discussion for us is because the hour record, uh, for those of you listeners who have followed um, time trial and track, and even you know those of you who were exposed to the hour record through Lionel Sanders' successful Canadian. Uh, record bid uh, about a month ago. Uh, the hour record is really kind of the synthesis of all of the the deep cycling nerddom that, uh, that Andrew and I love so much to talk about on the show, because there's very, very little room for error, and you really are looking to to optimize the, you know, optimize your performance to the very last watt or meter, um, as as the case is for the hour record. So I think it's a perfect conversation for the show, and uh, I'm thrilled that uh, Dan's going to be the one to walk us through it. Dan, thank you very much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's always great to to talk.
2: Uh, I can talk at length. About, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah it's such an interesting one, and there's so many cool little aspects to it. And I've been listening to your podcast. A good last few months, actually. One of my friends um, put me onto it, and it's got me through a lot of uh, long turbos and long rides. So, uh, yeah, thank you for the great content.
0: Oh, absolutely! Thank you. And we were off the air, listeners. We were just talking to Dan, trying to figure out which, you know, what of many topics we can talk about today. We're trying to keep it to about an hour and a bit, not much longer, just so that uh, we, you know, we stay stick to our format. Um, But there is there's definitely a lot to uh, to dig into. So why don't we start with the the hour um, that you are looking to do, and kind of I know it. There were some some starts and stops for you this year in your attempt because of obviously the pandemic. So give us a little bit of the history of your interest in doing the hour record and what you were trying to do and what it looks like you're going to be able to do um, in the next little bit. Sure. So we'll probably rewind about well, the last few years, really. Uh, I've been riding on track at
2: UCI World Cups for who What Bike, a UCI uh, track trade team that I set up back in 2017. been mm-hmm. racing team pursuits. That was always our, our big thing, and it's what I've enjoyed. I, well, I just enjoy track because it's really nerdy. And uh, when the UCI changed the regulations back in 2019, around June time, basically just forbidden uh yeah. Uh, Tracks ready teams from competing anymore at the highest level. So we thought, well, let's go. Let's go to to altitude and have a go at pretty much every world record that we thought we could uh, get close to. So there was like Johnny was keen on a go for the kilo. We obviously keen for the individual pursuit. We had Ashton Lambie coming up as well. So it was going to be a bit of a duel between him and John. <laughs> um, and then the team suit was the big one that we really wanted. And we thought it was a bit of a kicker. Let's go for the hour as well while we're up there. Just one big week of trying try, try the hands at everything. Um we were on our final altitude camp in Tenerife up on Mount Tidy back in uh was it March, April time when all this COVID stuff hit. We got caught in the lockdown there yeah. and um <clears throat> quickly realized that our plans to head to Bolivia just a few weeks later were not gonna happen. And yeah, since then obviously things have, have changed pretty quickly and, and quite drastically in the last 12 months. So um being or well, we've we've all sort of spread to the four winds, as it were, and having opportunity to kind of be a bit selfish in our own training, knowing that team events are not going to be happening for some time. So I decided I'd, I'd be keen to have a go at the hour record. And there's multiple options with it, really. Uh, I'm not on the World Anti-Doping Whereabouts program, which is, one, really expensive and too far to get onto. But that kind of forbids me right now anyway to go for the TSO World UCI hour record without putting about 30K of cash down. Huh. So oh, in okay. the meantime... Yeah, I know. Um, it's frustrating. But yeah, I, I understand why. At the end of the day, it's, it's about ensuring that athletes are performing clean and right. that record is in high regard. So they don't just want every man and their dog, who knows what, having a go at it. They want to be sure and confident that those who achieve it are clean. Um, so I mean, if if the stars align and I get some good sponsorship, then I'm all keen for that. Uh but as it stands, the only thing I'm eligible to to attempt is the British record, which just so happens okay. to be the sea level record, uh which is held by Bradley Wiggins, uh fifty-four point five two six kilometers back in London in twenty fifteen. Okay. Um which I was there actually watching at the time <laughs> I was <which> is, <laughs> You were
0: yeah. stopping out the competition already, huh? <laughs>
2: it was before it even started riding track, which is, is mad oh. thinking back. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the plan is to, to have a go at that. I, I did a bit of a dry practice run, uh, back in February, just after a, a team pursuit session, um, and knocked out 52.6 off. Nice. Fairly tired legs and definitely not optimal kit or conditions. So that was quite good and that kind of sparked my interest. And then the last 12 months I've been working with the Danish Federation and there's a, one of my colleagues, a guy called Martin Toff Madsen, who I'm sure a lot of listeners know or have heard of, is mm-hmm. a bit of an amazing time trialist. Um, he currently has the Danish uh, hour record of 53.975, which is the second furthest at sea level, to my knowledge anyway. Nice. So yeah, he's pretty quick, and uh, we've just had a bit of internal team
0: competition of like, right, we're going <laughs> to our record off, and it's going to happen. That, that always <laughs> helps. Um, Dan, I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt for a little bit, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. just to give our listeners some context. And and Andrew and I talked about this ooh, a long time ago, maybe almost a year ago. But the, you know, you mentioned you you keep talking about sea level records. Um, why is it significant that you're doing a sea level record versus, you know, the obvious alternative is not sea level, something in altitude. Tell us about the difference between the two conditions and why the results are affected by altitude. Sure. So effectively, when you're
2: riding a bike anywhere, you're putting energy in, spot your power meter measures and all that energy goes somewhere.
0: Uh,
2: yep. uh, when you're riding on a flat, smooth surface, such as a velodrome, pretty much the vast majority of your energy goes to aerodrag drag and the aerodrag equation, you well, the two things you can manipulate are your CDA, which everyone was talking about, how low can you get. <laughs> but the second thing you can manipulate is your air density. So when you're at altitude, at uh, sea level, typically you wait for a, a really stormy day and then you whack the heating on and get it as high as you can go, <laughs> uh, which tends to help a little bit. But you can't mess about with the air pressure unless you seal your velodrome up, which is probably impossible, as good as impossible. But you can get to altitude and the effect's pretty massive. So if you went from sea level which you might get an air density of around 1.15 kilograms per meter cubed. Mm-hmm. When it's altitude, you can get 0.85 or 0.9, which basically means you're, you're lopping off about 20, 25% of aero drag. Wow. And the power hit is probably in the region around 10%. So you still mm-hmm. net up 10 to 15% drag reduction or energy reduction. So um, that's pretty much why everyone goes to altitude. It's It's faster.
0: Right.
2: It's definitely harder. You've got to prepare better for it, but... From a physics perspective, you're just playing
0: with it and putting it in your favor, um, which is why the current record is set up there with with camping Arts. For sure, and of course, the the reason you take a power hit is because of the you know the lower partial pressure of oxygen means you have less oxygen to go to your muscles. So you're you know just like anyone who's ever raced or trained at altitude knows you your. All of your performance metrics are going to be you know degraded by a certain percentage, even if you are altitude adapted, but you' as you say it's still it's still a net win at the speeds that you guys are operating at, right? yeah, exactly that, and the faster or the shorter the event you do, the the
2: higher the optimal altitude. so like a team pursuit, the optimal is probably like three and a half thousand if you're doing a two hundred you're probably talking more like five thousand meters Wow, um, just because it's less aerobic and obviously you're going faster, so you the aero drag becomes inf- or cubically more important
0: right right cool okay so you're uh, you're getting set to do to chase the british hour record uh, at at sea level so what are your uh, where, when do you think this is going to happen i mean <laughs> obviously with with everything that's going on and that with the very with the constantly changing situation that we're everyone, I think in the world is faced with, unless you're Australia and New Zealand, maybe. Um, what are your thoughts on when this attempt's going to happen? So pretty soon is, is the plan. We're talking in the next six to
2: eight weeks. So the, the current situation is uh, <laughs> assuming COVID and Brexit pending. Uh, we head up to altitude to, to Tenerife for a couple of weeks sort of mid January, come back at the end of Jan, and head over to Denmark. And we're going to ride on, I say we, me, Toft, my girlfriend, Josh, she, she's going to have a go as well. Um, oh, cool. cool. Yeah, all in. Um, so yeah, going to Odin's in Denmark, which is a pretty quick track uh, that we know quite well. Uh, and the organisers there are pretty fluid and helpful in general, like some tracks, um, just very hard to get in contact with, not least try and put an event on. Whereas these guys you can quite literally just email, and they'd be like, "Yeah, sure, it's going to cost this much. Give me two weeks' notice, and I put it on." And like, oh, fantastic! That's amazing. You just what you need, um, just an easy life, just to run into the records. So you can focus on your own preparation and not man managing a timekeeper, a commissaire, and all the other stuff that goes with it. So yeah, the plan is to, to head over there. Um, had some some good experience there. I did a practice run back in July. I was over in Denmark for a month and uh I did thirty minutes at our record pace, relatively speaking, quite comfortably. So fifty, four and a half K an hour, which was a smidge under three hundred and seventy watts. Huh. So it was pretty pretty good. It's kind of about my limit <laughs> for my threshold, <sure>, but um, <laughs> unsurprisingly that's the case. So just been since then, just polishing every aspect of it, uh whether well primarily been clothing, skin suits, over shoes, but a lot of the sort of little details because they all make a massive difference when right when you're running around at that speed, one watt is about fifty meters over the hour, so it quickly adds up when you save a watt here and a watt there, and um, yeah, that's all I need a few hundred meters, and it becomes a whole lot easier.
0: Absolutely. So let's uh, let's do that. Let's talk about all the all of the elements that go into it, and um, and specifically, let's start with the the physiology. What are you know the the requirements? of uh of you know competing at your level uh in the hour record and then as we talk about that maybe we can uh sidebar into some of the technology or some of the uh some of the science that you use in uh in making sure that you're you know you're ticking those boxes so let's let's start with physiology okay so off the bat i would say um
2: the metric that we use to predict performance or to analyze performance is what's the cda so just like if you're a climber yep. and you're Racing on one Von two, you're looking at watts per kilo because that's what matters. For us, it's what's the CDA. Right. What we do, we need to target, what's the CDA to achieve that speed, which for me is around 2250 uh, at a given air density, hopefully one that we can achieve on the day. And that means I can either be more aerodynamic and put less watts out or be less aero and put more watts out. Right. Uh, And the way it works out with how aerodynamic I am now, I need about 370 watts to break Wigan's record which compared to him I mean there's varying numbers put out there he claims it was 440 or 450 I think he was probably more around the 410 mark um yeah he didn't have the best day given that uh so yeah it's it's a little bit lower but 370 is is pretty hard um
0: (laughs) yeah no kidding (laughs) especially yeah especially holding that position which is another part of that physiology equation
2: yeah, so that, that's kind of one thing that I've really focused on the last 12 months. I uh, sort of said earlier, I was trying to be a bit more selfish in my training, having run a team for a few years that eats a lot out of you alongside all the, the business stuff. So um, sure, yeah, I've, I've literally lived on my time trial bike. I do over 95% of my training, I would say, in TT position. Uh, Interesting, okay. Yeah, and it's, it's something that you guys have discussed and how much you can do and how much you should do, and it's something I've always argued over and said, well, I don't it's not that i don't care about road racing but i'm not so motivated by trying to win a road race or do anything particularly on the road bike everything for me is tt and track in that position so i i just need to be as efficient and as uh, strong as i can be in the time trial position and adaptations come from riding in that so yeah quite literally all my efforts all my zone two riding everything tt position and it's not just the the physiology side it's the biomechanical, the biomechanical side and how your muscles support you, your neck, your shoulders, your traps, how yep. you I can mean, sustain that position for hours on end. Because when you ride full gas for an hour on the track, it, it starts to hurt at some point. And if you've done the, the long, hard miles, it should be a little bit easier to, to hold a good
0: aero position. So that that hard five-hour ride you did in the rain to get your crank that you told me about off-air, was that in the aero position? Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was going to throw you under the bus and be like, no, that was on my on my like gravel bike or something. But uh, that was on T- TT, huh? No, uh, yeah, pretty much everything is, it, it just has to be, um, oh, amazing. not even just my TT bike
2: as well. So like I have my track bike set up on, um, a um, so I can ride in the exact same position on the exact same power meter with yeah. relatively speaking the correct inertia, which is fairly important that riding at higher speeds, uh, induces where you get, di- you have different inertia, so your muscles work differently because effectively that you can put a greater amount of uh, impulse into the pedals and then the muscles can recover because you have more kinetic energy stored within the system, so you don't decelerate quite so much uh,
0: in that lack of power phase. That's so interesting. So this is something that Kurt Bergen-Taylor talked mm-hmm. quite a bit about when he when we had him on the show. Um, and so this is, when you're talking about inertia in the sense of, like, inertia in your body, you're talking about, that's just cadence, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. In- inertia is, um, well, uh, what is it from an engineering term of the... Uh, a system's desire to continue in the same state. So in in actual just energetic terms, you are storing energy in your bike and in your body. Mm -hmm. And the faster you go, the more energy you have stored. So the difference between 1K an hour when you're riding at 10K an hour is um, a much greater energy difference than um, the same kilometer an hour difference. Sorry, much less energy difference. So effectively what happens if you stop, if you coast, you don't reduce your speed quite so much. Uh, when you're high speed which just means you pedal quite differently
1: so um yeah we've we've definitely talked about this a lot in terms of trainer development because uh when you're when you're looking at road feel of a trainer um it's poor road feel is kind of like riding up a hill where you decelerate almost completely in between pedal strokes. Um, So it only makes sense that it would extend the other way as well. So that if you're traveling at very high speed, you're going to maintain that energy and you're going to maintain that momentum throughout the the entire pedal stroke. But uh, I hadn't necessarily thought in terms of biomechanics or muscular efficiency that it has such a large change.
2: Yeah. When you're training around a specific power and a specific cadence and the firing pattern and position, then every little bit does matter that you want to be perfectly adapted to that situation. Uh, and being able to contract your muscles efficiently or the right muscles as well. Because if you're pedaling the whole way through a cycle, you use different muscle groups in that dead spot, which at high inertia you don't particularly need. Um which does mean that time trialists don't always make the best climbers it's obviously exceptions to the rule um, but largely if you're focusing on being a time trialist, you're probably not going to climb all that well.
0: So are you thinking about your gearing when you're when you're designing your gearing? I know I'm getting a little bit off well maybe not off topic but uh, in 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 order to maximize this energy because I mean there's got to be a certain point where you're you know if you get to a certain cadence you're 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 starting to to uh, add you know, metabolic costs that you may not want to add at, at very high cadences. Yeah. Cadence is, uh,
2: such an interesting subject in general. And I think yes. the last few years in general on the track, people have gone to bigger and bigger gears because they've seen the benefits that historically it, it used to be a case of just spin and your team pursuit at like 140 RPM, which just didn't make any. <laughs> sense. Um, I know it's like, if you want to go faster, you've just got to spin quicker. It's just, yeah, it's a bit backwards. Um, but yeah, there's, there's obviously a, an efficient uh, sort of zone, cadence zone uh, for most people. And that does vary person to person, position to position and speed to speed. So um, just trying to find what works for you. I do think most people on the track tend to be under undergeared. Um, there is other things to consider in bunch races, obviously accelerations, decelerations. If you're riding a Madison, you've got to ride slowly on the bank. And if you've got a big gear, that's mm-hmm. it's not much fun. <laughs> In an hour record, it's quite a nice thing to optimize because, bar lap one, you've you've got 59 and a half minutes of just over that of the exact same thing. Uh, You do have a slight variation in your cadence. Uh, It's one thing that people haven't mentioned too much on the hour that effectively you do four seconds of one cadence and then you accelerate throughout the banking to a higher cadence, then decelerate back to the straight and just repeat that 400 times. So there is uh, a couple or a few RPM oscillation which is a bit fatiguing uh, but you can deal with it quite well if you're relatively familiar and used to riding the track uh, which is another reason why I think a lot of top time trialists in in the past 20-30 years have come to the track to have a go at the hour and have struggled a little bit more because they're not familiar and not used to that and It can be uh, quite
1: fatiguing. So I remember when Lionel Sanders was doing his hour attempt, there was a lot of discussion around, and this is the Canadian hour attempt, but there was a lot of discussion around his gearing because it was exceptionally low compared to what most people do on the track. And he comes from a... Triathlon background, which typically favors a lower cadence than uh, road cyclists, and I think he was averaging around eighty-eight to ninety RPM. Uh, so it was high gearing, right? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, sorry, high gearing. Yeah. So low RPM, high gearing. Um, so he, uh, th- there was this discussion, and a lot of, I think, a lot of people traditionally thought that uh, it wouldn't be possible to set that record at such low RPM. But uh, he came in there and he he beat the old record by quite a margin. And he did it at a very unconventional uh, gear ratio, but he had to find all this custom equipment. Like it was a 60 plus tooth chain ring I think he was running, which was, uh, I remember talking to David Tilbury Davis, his coach, and he was saying it was difficult to actually find something that was set up and optimized for that because very few people ever run that. But uh, for him, that's certainly what he trains at most of the time. So his body is optimized for that and his training has been optimized for that. So there was no point in trying to all of a sudden spin 110, 120 RPM for an hour when he has never really trained for that in the past.
0: Yeah, well, he's a triathlete coming in to do, you know, the hour record. He's not, you know, a dedicated track Mm -hmm. rider.
1: But it was just – it was – interesting how the different training methodology has led to that and yeah there's like you're saying Dan there's going to be some inefficiencies in terms of the first lap because it's it's going to be a little bit harder to accelerate you're going to need more uh, more muscular output to to get up to speed but uh, once you get going as long as your body's operating in the efficient in its most efficient mode then um, that's really what matters for the hour
2: yeah the, the sort of higher you, you go the more load you're shifting across so then suddenly your cardiovascular system has to deal with all that because you've got your legs spinning at a higher rate and the inertial losses of that and having to contract at a high velocity your CNS system or your, yeah, your CNS can start to fatigue. fairly mm-hmm. noticeably, and that's one of the factors that we're trying to measure and look at <coughs> in the practice hour that we we will have um, muscle EMG sensors on just to see is that something meaningful, especially in the last 10-15 minutes when... Um, you probably start to to struggle on the motor recruitment side and see if it is uh, something that's worthwhile investigating and and doing more training around because it might might be quite a low-hanging piece of fruit that no one's looked at yet.
0: I definitely want to talk about that, but before we jump off of the uh, the 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 well, I mean CNS is definitely physiology, but uh, I want to ask you a question about position. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that you do ninety plus per- percent of your training in the in the position that you're going to be uh, attempting the record in. So how do you ensure that the position that you've tested probably? you know dozens of times on the track and optimized and uh how do you make sure that when you're training you're you're faithful to that position what are the, some of the tools you use or some of the tips you have for that uh i think the,
2: the thing yeah. primarily is making sure that all your bikes have the same position as close as possible so even my road bike itself my saddle uh setup is nigh on identical i run the same saddle on my road bike which is ism pn 1.1 i think off top. Of med mm-hmm. um just Everything as close as you can, and just replicating that. So your my TT bars on my training bike are the same on my race TT bike, on the same on my track bike. Um, so from I'm finding improvements in a particular change, whether it's saddle down or stack up or whatever it might be, then just make sure that's consistent across the board, um, and just trying to practice in position There's, there's not. Really anything, uh, I know silver bullets are such as like, oh, when you ride around, you need to do high cadence or low cadence efforts or anything like that, just ride the bike and become familiar with it and just know that, you know, you can throw it into a blind bend at 50, 60k an hour and, and trust that your, your tires are going to grip and you're confident in how the bike handles because uh, even more so on road time trials, you've got to ride full gas, very fatigued uh, with relatively speaking, in, at least in closed, closed road time trials, quite limited vision. Um, and be able to, to ride it like that. So I think it's just spend time on the bike and, and just do as much as you can in, in the exact position. Don't ride on the base bar unless you absolutely need to. Even climbs, so the climb and the extensions, um, just get the gearing right, simple as that.
0: Do you have a magic speed? Because this is something that Andrew and I have talked about, and we we kind of well, I mean, it depends obviously on your strength. But uh, at what point do you sit up? Like how how big of a hill? How slow are you going when you're sitting up? Just as a this is a total sidebar question, but it's always the one that's that's super interesting for for triathletes and time trialists. Yeah.
2: So the way I calculated that one, I, I don't particularly sit up on many climbs on the TT bike unless you're going very slow. So the way I did it was make an assumption on what my critical power drop-off was between the two positions. Yeah, There's a guy called Medi Cordy who's helped us a huge amount in the past few years. He used to be a physiologist at UK Sport and now works for the, the Dutch Federation with their sprinting. But um he did a PhD, in, or one of his studies was in um, the impact on critical power and W prime of different positions, basically like on the extensions or on the hoods was the main one. And uh-huh. was some really, it was all on elite athletes, uh, really clean data. And I, off the top of my head, it was something like a 15-watt drop-off between the two. So I just took that and said, well, how much aero drag uh, do you get at any given speed? And you're just looking for that crossover of 15 watts, and it, and it comes out about 26, I think, 27K an hour, somewhere around there. Um, so if you're climbing, then it's that kind of threshold. That was the way I, I worked it out. Um, but I try to avoid climbs when I'm going at 20K an hour. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah for the for the rest of our for the rest of us uh you know in the mortal realm listeners yeah so that's that's a number that that sounds about right to me like that's kind of what what andrew and i have talked about like 20 mm-hmm. to 25 kilometers an hour is when you're when you're hitting those speeds at and you're sticking to your power plan for whatever your race execution is that's that's maybe when you want to consider sitting up
1: yeah and i think the number that we came up with in the past was based on a 10 percent power drop off which um uh, i think your your approach dan is a little bit more scientific but uh you Using that basic base assumption of 10%, it ended up being 18 to 22, I think was the sweet spot for most people. But yeah. that will also depend on your difference between your TT aerodynamics and your upright aerodynamics.
0: Yeah. And then the delta between those two positions is Dan said. So for like for elite riders, it's probably a lot smaller than, than for someone who's, uh, you know, for, for a recreational triathlete. Mm-hmm. It might be anyway, depending on how they train and what position they train. It's, it's a very complicated question. That's why there's always a bit of a range.
2: Yeah, the other thing as well that's hard to put into that is the subjective relief of getting out of the position if you're not well adapted
0: to it. Yeah,
2: if you're on, if you know that you're coming up to a climb, whether it's a benefit or not a benefit from a physiology aerodynamics perspective, but just the let's get out of the position, let's stretch a bit, let's let's have some variety. That in itself can be really beneficial.
0: That's an excellent point. That's what they were all the commentators at the PTO were talking about when they mm-hmm. were saying how tough that race was because it was just basically like a two-hour time trial uh where where no where they weren't coming out of position except for to, to grab bottles and how how many people you saw cramp up as soon as they got off the bike and started running like these elite performers who were you know who were very used to doing this kind of work how many of
1: them had pretty poor runs after that after that bike and i found the same at ironman maryland as well where i think the total elevation of that course over the 180 kilometers was maybe 50 meters gain um so it was just ridiculously flat um the the only climbs were going up like maybe 2 meters for a bridge um but aside from that it was just the flattest thing you can imagine and you think of that as being a blessing but it's actually kind of terrible uh, like it's very fast but it's also just so hard on your body not getting that ability to stretch out and relieve those muscles
2: it's something that so few people were. Put value on and you don't realise until you ride in that environment that braking and hills and corners just give you so much relief. Um and when I first did an hour, I was like, oh my God, that was terrible, the fact you lose <laughs> <laughs> It's the usual thing of like, I'll never do one again and then like two days later, <laughs> <I can't
1: wait>. <laughs> <laughs> Another really interesting point, actually, is the effect of cornering and your confidence and ability to corner. And this is something that uh, one of my colleagues put a little simulation together just to see what the delta would be for cornering kind of at an elite level versus a very cautious level. And if you're taking the corner at uh, around 0.8 Gs versus 0.3 Gs, I think was the comparison. Um, So we looked at kind of doing a five kilometer uh, course with four turns in it and the 0.8 versus 0.3 ended up to uh, being a 5-watt power increase in order to maintain the same speed. And that's just carrying more speed through the corners and accelerating uh, or having to accelerate less to reach your steady-state speed again. So, um, And I think this is something that's so undervalued, especially for triathletes uh, who are <laughs> known at being not the best bike handlers out there. But uh, it, that one is really a free-speed uh, thing where you can make so much of an improvement by just working on your bike handling skills and your confidence and cornering.
2: Yeah, it's free speed, as they say. Um but the yeah the twofold is you're traveling faster through the corner. So you're you're gaining time, but you're also you losing losing less energy. So you're having to put less into mm-hmm. accelerate. It's it's an absolute no-brainer, but it obviously just comes down to time and spending some part of your training doing that um, and i don't think everybody does a lot of people just think about i've got to be super strong i've got to be super strong but if if you need to find another five watts that might take you on your threshold anyway a good few months of training whereas if you spend half an hour a week just going to i don't know the local industrial estate and just ram it through some 90 degree corners and build that confidence up then you'll soon gain that back
0: makes sense. Well, let's jump back into uh uh central nervous system stuff that you started talking about and then I then I cut you off <laughs> into this awesome divergent right? uh, the, this awesome little uh um sidebar. So, um central nervous system fatigue is something that is, is something that as a coach I've been super interested in because it's been very difficult to quantify um you know, when somebody's like when someone does a workout and they you know, they they're fine in the beginning, and then they, as they fatigue, they start to uh, they start to be less and less fine, and then they're having a super tough time finishing. And of course, anyone who's ever done a race or a time trial uh, experiences this sensation. Um, so there are obviously a lot of uh, models for fatigue and a lot of reasons why someone gets tired. You know, there's all sorts of. Um, uh, metabolic issues and then, and thermal stress, which is something we will also talk about in a little bit, but, um, central nervous system fatigue is something of, that's a bit of a mystery. So, uh, Dan, you mentioned in our offline conversation that this is, uh, an area that you've done a little bit of studying into, and, uh, you're looking to see if this is something that is, is worth training. So can you walk us through that please? Of course. Cool. So this actually started
2: a year or two ago now. Um, so I his name again, Medi Cordy, uh, was, I was questioning him on why I didn't back up very well between team pursuit efforts. But relative to my teammates, we all train relatively similarly of similar athletes, et cetera. Um, but I struggled more in later efforts. Um, and he put forward the proposition that maybe it is related to, to CNS fatigue. And the only way to really understand that is to to measure it and to measure how well you're recruiting your, your muscles. Okay. Um, So he Well, the plan was to use one um, back at the National Track Champs in the team pursuit, but for one reason or another, they didn't come together. However, it still kind of stayed on the plate. And then there's some good research come out recently, a guy called Chris Beardsley, who looked into uh, how, well, effectively how much, uh, how many motor units you're recruiting at a constant level performance, uh, and then how many can be recruited and sort of where that sort of crossover, drops off, and you've had to be fall off a cliff, i.e. you can't ride at the same level that you want to anymore. Um, but it was just one of these discussions within our, our group chats. There's uh, myself and Mehdi and Johnny and Tipper, and my coach and my teammates and whatever. So we just bash ideas about and um, uh-huh. saying, well, in the hour, a lot of it is just controlling rate of perceived exertion and, and fatigue and making sure that thermal stress doesn't build up and that you can continue to ride at the correct power that you need to do. Uh, so this was a big question mark with, uh, those past few years of team pursuing of, okay, is this going to really bite me in the ass in the last five or 10 minutes (laughs) or uh, is it something that we can just put on the shelf and say, don't worry about it. So, uh, yeah, we've now got our hands on one and we have a practice hour lined up in a couple of weeks where effectively it measures, um, it's an EMG on on your muscles. You put it on the working muscle, on the quad, Uh on the hamstring as well um and just yeah see so see what happens in this <laughs> the long and short of it we don't particularly know if it's going to be meaningful i do think it probably will have some significant effect uh so you're likely to be unable to fire your muscles as, as hard as you want to at the back end of an hour record um but we're trying to correlate all these different factors so we're putting together better we've got a big sensor array of everything aside of the usual power heart rate speed uh, and aero data, but also yeah, the the CNS side of things, the core body temperature, um, and then the biomech as well through the So Just trying to see, okay, well, if this changes and we fatigue, is it because you've got too hot and you're fried in your head, or is it because your biomechanics have all fallen apart and you're weak in your core, or something else? Like, what what is going wrong that you can address in the next four or five weeks before the actual hour, um, or even after that anyway? Just for general performance, just trying to understand why fatigue is happening in me and what I can do to control that room or mitigate it.
0: This is fascinating stuff because um, I just did, I was uh, just as a, as one of these virtual challenges um, I did a, a virtual 40 K time trial on, on Zwift and my, i uh, you know, Zwift does CDA in a funny way. We've talked about this before, and it's it's very it's not very kind to you. I think I I I I, I back calculated mine to be about 0.275 and I'm I'm certainly not very slippery, but that's that's a little bit insulting. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so uh, I think I was uh, I did the forty k in I don't know like fifth. I should remember my times, but it was it wasn't very impressive. It was like fifty eight thirty, I think, or something like that, at like two ninety three watts, I think. And, um, and I was very happy with my performance, like 293 for an hour for me is pretty good right now. Um, but I was, uh, I was wearing the core sensor, which I just, which I just picked up. And, um, and I was obviously, you know, I was fairly well fed and topped up. And so like glycogen levels were fine. My core temperature never got super high. Actually, I think I topped out at like 38.3 maybe. So certainly not anything that would, in my opinion, and I haven't done any testing yet, but I don't think it would affect performance too, too much, but certainly RPE was, you know, was, was, was going higher as I went along. And the last, you know, the last 10 kilometers were, were pretty tough. And the only thing that I mean, not the only thing, but I always want to point my finger at that CNS fatigue because that would be, you know, it, having to turn over my legs, my cadence started to drop a little bit, and that's for me kind of the the sign that that CNS fatigue is what's going on. And again, this is purely from a from a you know an armchair physiologist perspective. This is just a, a hunch for me, um, but uh, that's why I'm so so interested in this in this research. Yeah, so am I in, in, in short. Sure it's quite an exciting thing
2: that to sort of look under the hood. Um, and the plan is to put together a bit of a paper off the back of it and just document everything that went into it and what came out the back end. Because uh, I don't think anybody's really looked at the hour record from, a, from that perspective before. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully there's something... That comes out of it um, not just oh well nothing happened and you just got really tired and ran out.
0: Of <laughs> but, well no but i mean like you know, not find i guess in, in in research if you find out that that wasn't the you know that wasn't the cause then that's still a, a useful finding right
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. hopefully it means other people don't have to look down the alleyway uh, but then it also it could be very individual it could vary oh, yeah. person to person depending on who you are as an athlete your background your training even down to yeah the gear you pick if you gear up, does that fatigue your CNS more or less? I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. So, one other area I'd be really interested to take a look into is um, the effect of the non-round chain rings, like osymmetric or the Q rings, um, because you're you're changing how your muscles fire. So, will that be beneficial for shorter races where maybe the, the CNS fatigue may be slightly different versus an hour record? Um, so, I have no idea. Like I've seen kind of anecdotal data, and they, a lot of them claim that there's you know, 10% improvement to power, which I find a little bit tough to believe. But That sounds high. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there, there will certainly be some impact on your, your biomechanics and on your physiology there, but I don't know, will it be beneficial? Will it just kind of offset the, the losses and just shift how things are operating? Or will there be a net benefit, net loss? Um, like I personally enjoy using the osymmetric chain rings, but uh, I don't know what actual scientific proof there is out there.
2: Yeah, it seems to be few and far between from an independent perspective, doesn't it? And I guess it's a hard thing to measure as well, because the nature of varying your angular velocity typically screws up power meter measurements. Um, so you're having to measure power somewhere else to, to be confident of what's happening there. Um, I mean, the other frustrating thing anyway is the UCI have banned non-round rings from the track, so you can't use uh, oval rings if that was really a thing. Anyway, it's kind of a, a hard thing to do when you want to fix gear and want some set amount of chain tension and the amount of teeth that are engaged tends to vary ever so slightly. Um, yeah. So it's it's one of those, maybe for the road time trial, you can start to look into it. Um, and I, I used to use them. I've, I've been through uh, road rotor both Q, QXL, osymmetric, back on round, kind of undenared. I think there is something in it, but it's not um, completely hard and set of like, yeah, it's definitely a win of X percent. Uh, definitely more research to be done there, I think.
0: I bet too that there's a, there's a, a a fairly large training effect there. Like you know mm-hmm. you you you'd, they would be good for you if you trained in them and bad for you if you just jumped on them without any kind of training. But it's it would be a very I I, I don't know how you would study it how you would conduct a, a really robust study where you gave folks enough time to train on them and then compared them to a similar training program uh, on round rings. I think that would be that would be a tough uh, a tough study to design just because of how much time potentially it could take. Uh, for someone to get fully accustomed to them and get the the full utility out of the rings,
2: I've heard the the converse as well that you should not use them in training and you should only use them on race day. Again, don't particularly or haven't looked into the the logic as to why. Um, but supposedly, hmm, interesting it changes your muscle firing pattern and not for the better. So you should train on round, race on oval.
1: Yeah, I know they can't be terrible though, because I'd say Chris Froome has been moderately successful on them at least. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, so they're, you know, whether or not they provide an individual benefit, I think it comes down more to preference and how you feel on them. So if you enjoy them and there's a better psychological impact, then maybe that's what you need to go with. Um, and I did find that I raced better and faster when I was using them. So um, that, that's my own personal opinion. It may vary, <laughs> results may vary for people.
0: So, Dan, let's talk about the kind of the, the big, you know, the big ticket item here and uh, we can probably break it up. But uh, aerodynamics, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the key metric and I I meant to, you know, glomp onto it earlier, but I'll, I'll talk about it now. The key metric in the hour being watts per CDA. And I would make the argument that that's the key metric in triathlon as well, um, because in at least, you know, non-drafting triathlon. Um, where it's it's all about steady state speed as much as you can, steady state power for the most part, um, and success or, well, outcomes are determined by power and CDA much more than uh, power and weight. Um, and it's, I think, I, I'm trying to encourage the folks that I work with and anyone I talk to to think more about watts per CDA, uh, for, who are triathletes, I mean, versus watts per kilogram. Um, so obviously CDA is is is, is Enormously important. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that you've done in uh, in you know in this last year or last nine months of prep of preparing yourself for the hour record, in order to drop that CDA as low as it'll go.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a good metric. Um, you can quite easily backwards calculate it for most. People who put their power up on Strava, if you were time trial, you can figure out. Well, you did a forty minute TT, and you outheld this watts to CDA, and you can actually get a good idea on what people might do for an hour record based on that, which is quite nice. Um, I guess it's a bit like going back to the 2 Von- Von analogy of uh, someone rides up 2 If you know how fast they rode up and how much they, they weighed, then uh, you can probably figure out if they were doing an hour climb how long it'd take. So it's, it's much the same, it's just for um so yeah what have i done i guess the first thing is I've, I've been quite optimized for a few years and things are smaller and smaller tweaks um everyone always says obviously your body is a big proportion of that and i guess we'll come on to skin suits and over shoes and things in a second but i think the more aerodynamic you become the more you also need to go back and focus on equipment because it becomes a bigger proportion of your drag sure uh some things are fairly consistent so like tires and wheels very happy with um and there's actually very little there from tests that, that i've done that it's, it's quite hard to find a big improvement in something that's fairly well optimized um i think one that i've well we're just coming to the to uh having a production one of is our crank set that we know there's a good amount of improvement to come from that and really okay yeah for a number of reasons that um some things I want to keep quiet, but others are just there isn't a very aerodynamic crank set out there that works well on track bikes and gives you everything you need from like an adjustment perspective. So we've got a full range of crank length adjustments just by changing inserts. You can go from like a 150 to a 180 if you wanted to. Oh, uh, wow, okay, cool. And it's also yeah, very a very aerodynamically optimized crank set. Um but also
0: done a huge And is this something that WatchOp is developing? Your your Yeah. Uh,
2: been about eighteen months in development now. Um, oh, cool, cool. Yeah, we got it qualified for Tokyo Olympics, uh, so it's all ready to roll for that. And then somewhat, well, I guess lucky because of the delay of Tokyo, but that was also the reason why the crank was delayed, because of all the COVID stuff and production that meant we've only just literally got our first one off the production line last week. Um, but yeah, it's it's been like a, um, a project we knew there was always going to be gains in, but you had to really dig into every single aspect. There's been everything from quite heavy CFD, um, also wind tunnel tests with um, either nylon machined models or FDM printed uh, models and just comparing and benchmarking to other ones and then obviously track tests as well to really correlate because at the end of the day, you race on the track. If you can't measure the gain there, then it's it's pretty pointless. Um, right. So that's kind of been a big one. But in conjunction with that is drivetrain testing. And uh, with the Danish Federation, we've spent some time and come up with our own pretty unique, I would say, drivetrain test rig that uh, we've just been like churning away on everything from chains and lubricants to tooth design and, and materials of chain rings and cogs. And that's been really eye-opening, actually. The, I mean, Zero Friction Cycling, you probably follow those guys. Uh, I think it's is it Kieran. It's be the way he, he always says that he tries to target those guys who make big, lofty claims about their lubricants, that they're amazing and they do everything <laughs> um, Yeah, right yeah uh they'll solve world hunger and whatever else um so yeah (laughs) we are much the same like well let's try all these these amazing lubricants and these amazing chains and you quickly figure out that so many of them yeah just straight up don't work whether it's they just have an idea as to why something could be better and run with it and don't actually have the data to back it up and i guess that's a common problem actually in the world of cycling production that you have an idea for a product and by the time you spent all your money on it, you're so invested that you kind of just, you feel like you have to get it across the line, whether it's yep. you give the, get the gains that you wanted or not. And it's a bit of a shame in a way, but unfortunately that's where a lot of businesses and how they run that once you're, you're sort of in all in really on the financial side, you've just got to get something across the line to, to recoup your costs, um, which often means, yeah, the, the best products, aren't the ones that are best marketed. They you just have to dig out and sift through and then try and understand why they're fast and how you can continue to improve that as well for your own benefit. So I think, yeah, drivetrain has been one that has taken some time, but we're finding some significant improvements there, um, and yeah, in fact, well, so
0: what sort of improvements? Like, I mean, so uh, uh, two questions: what sort of improvements? But also, uh, I want to I want to ask you about uh, this chain that Andrew and I talked about in one of our previous shows. It was out of a UK outfit. I forget the name, but it's a it's a double engagement chain that that uh, purports to. Yes, that's yeah. it. Yeah, 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 that purports to increase the contact the number of contact patches between chain ring and chain. Yes, yeah, so I've worked with Marcel for a while. Um, oh, okay, cool.
2: Yeah. Uh, So improvements-wise, probably, if we were to add everything up, maybe up to a 1% drivetrain improvement. So 1% of power loss um, versus what we otherwise considered was a good setup. Um, And that has come from, yeah, a lot of work around the material side and the lubricants and how they all work together and on specific chains. Um, So I guess it's a heavily optimised kind of situation, uh, trying to find all these little gains for ourselves. Um, But... um, yeah, at some point, I guess uh, we've got to get them to market and, and get a <laughs> chain ring out there that's that's the fastest. But there's a lot of data behind it, which is is quite nice, and you can always back up back up your results. Um, but yeah, the new Motion Labs chain. Uh, I was approached by Marcel Fowler uh, three years ago, nearly two and a half, three years ago, uh, of like okay. this awesome chain idea. Um, Go and have a look. <laughs> Hopped on a train, met him down in London. Showed me a little. I think it was SLS printed prototype of this is my chain. I was like, well, that's not gonna, not gonna go, not gonna survive a track bike. <laughs> um, and they were like, yeah, yeah, we're working on getting a production one, etc. And as you guys know, things like this move ever well a lot slower than you ever hope uh, or want them to. And when he's making something that has been optimized for tens, if not hundreds of years, and you're trying to improve it, and you're adding these tiny little metallic components in that needs to be manufactured different to anything else before it becomes time-consuming, expensive, um, and yeah, he's managed to get the funding, and he's got to a point now where they have a working prototype and a, a very awesome test rig as well that we'll be getting access to pretty soon. Uh, but in, in short, yeah, it's uh, a chain that. Uh, yeah, how do you describe it? It's really hard to, to think the word. To,
0: we, uh, we struggled with it too. We're like, okay, listeners, here's a link. You go look at the look at the picture as we talk about it.
2: Um, yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> look at some uh, <laughs> motion labs. Long and short is it It locks onto the, the tooth rather than the tooth pressing against a roller, which means that the roller does not roll up or down the tooth um, because losses are force times velocity. So if you don't have movement, you don't have a velocity, so you don't have a loss um hmm. that's that's moment. a good way to describe it yeah it's a pretty nifty thing but um it needs to yeah be proven i guess in the race environment yet yeah. but they should have them all together and i imagine quite a few nations will be running them in tokyo
1: it is a very interesting point though how you're trying to optimize something that's been uh optimized continually for the past hundred or so years with all these variables like um different sizes different constructions different lubricants things like that and now you've got something that the starting point might be 98% efficiency, and you're trying to essentially cut that in half for for something that has been so optimized already. Like That's phenomenal if they are able to achieve that. But it's also one of those things that, uh, like you were claiming or saying earlier with uh, some of the claims from lubricant manufacturers, for example, where it remains unproven without the the scientific or the good scientific data. So having and it sounds like they do have the the proper test data to to show all this, but having like a good third party or a very good test protocol that can validate this is super important. But uh I'm I'm very excited to see where it'll lead because track bikes, it looks like it's a very viable technology but in terms of road bikes with changing gears, it could be a challenge for this.
2: Yeah I'm fully aware and they're they're quite I don't think worried but they're aware of that as well Uh, they do have a few solutions that do derail uh, so they it's not just one design they've got two or three I think Um, so they're kind of different ways of going about what they're doing Um, so that I think they will have a solution for the road market but because Tokyo is on the horizon and and track kind Mm -hmm. of features in that quite heavily they're they're keen to capitalize on on that and go down that route as their proof of concept but i mean chains are used everywhere right in manufacturing and transport and everything so if you can find a one percent improvement then a lot of people will jump on you for it
1: yeah and i think it's it's good from a development standpoint too where you you prove the easier case and that it actually is a viable technology and it's reliable and it's something that can be manufactured and cost effective and then you start to solve the other problems and the other applications like having a derailleur and uh working on road bikes
2: maybe we'll just end up with a completely different derailleur setup that it it, it will push us down that because derailleur is a pretty optimized for what they are, but they're also, I mean, not all that great. You, you're constantly changing your efficiency by making a chain that has to work at some high angles um, and is exposed to the elements and everything else. So maybe it'll be the the kick that um, drivetrain or groupset makers um, need to do something a bit different.
1: Well, it's, it's a good point because they have stayed fairly static for the last... Quite a number of years. I don't want to claim a number because I know it'll be wrong. But uh, I know they've in their their current form they've been very similar for a long time. And yes, we've added things like index shifting and uh, like electronic shifting. So that has been an improvement in terms of the actual setup. It hasn't changed all that much. Where you do see a little bit of improvement or a little bit of innovation is in the uh, like the the commuter bikes or the city bikes where they use the um, I think it's roll off gearing in the hub itself. And that, that actually eliminates the, in some cases, that eliminates the derailleur setup. And you can have uh, four or six or eight speeds, I think, in the hub itself. Um, but the hub becomes very heavy. However, it doesn't, it's, it's mass you're carrying, but it's not really rotational mass, or at least it's very close to the rotation axis. So it's not a lot of inertia. Um, but that might be a way that, uh, that a chain like this could be used in a lot more applications. Cool.
0: Um, okay, let's uh, let's jump back to, into aerodynamics. And uh, there's obviously a, a lot of elements of aerodynamics that we can talk about. But I want to focus on two. Um, Dan, you've talked, uh, you've mentioned a couple of times skin suits, and they're important. So I want to definitely spend some time there. And also maybe talk a little bit about front ends, and we can we can talk about um, what Watchop is doing with uh, with front ends because of obviously, how important they are to your aerodynamic drag. So pick whichever one you want to talk about first, and uh, we'll we'll do that.
2: Uh, let's go with skin suits. Uh, they're
0: fresh on my mind,
2: having um, just just on Friday signed off the final skin suit uh, with a track test. So I'm quite lucky in that, uh, although my track and my road team are both sponsored by Who, they have a commercial relationship with Vortec, who I would say... In fact, I, 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 I bet my house that they're probably the most advanced skin suit manufacturer in the world. They are the nerds behind the Secret Scroll stuff for the past, what, three, four Olympic cycles with GB. They've, well, Rob Lewis is. Um, he is a big CFD aero nerd uh, of the grandest scale. And yeah, he he founded Total Sim, who was a spin out from Honda CFD, the F1. Uh, team years ago and he's mm-hmm. built in sports engineering hubs or the wind tunnel there. And yeah, he's, yeah, pretty cool guy. Um, just really helpful to, to know and um, just really keen and interested in projects like the hour record. And they've jumped wholeheartedly into it and said, okay, well, um, we'll basically set up a mini R and D program for you. And it's something they offer publicly as well. If, if you've got the money and you really want to go fast and they quite literally say, well, you pay, X pounds and give us the percentage increased target or decreased target of drag that you want and we keep going until we find you that uh, which is quite
0: cool huh. um,
2: yeah but they, they've just got all the facilities kind of ticked off in one building some world class CFD they've got a, a small fabric tunnel so they can test on cylinders 100, 200, 300 mil cylinders of all the different fabrics all the different tensions and options and seam options and tons of other things and then obviously the big wind tunnel that you can either chuck a mannequin in or um an actual moving rider as well as some pretty cool stuff looking at boundary layers in there as well that i don't think i can mention too much of but they they are like <laughs> absolute nerds uh and i just love being involved with them because they are so receptive to different ideas and to just questioning how they've gone about things how things could be done different or better and um they have some absolutely outrageously fast technology on so different aspects of skin suits obviously just spent a lot of time, money, and, and effort on doing it. And for me, that, that's meant that I've found a good few hundred meters in my suit over what was already a very fast skin suit that I'd spent the last two years optimizing my position around. So they've, they've done really well
0: there. So let's give the listeners a little bit of context. And and again, and this is something that Andrew and I touched about, talked about a little bit in the past, but um, why is it that skin suits are so incredibly important? Um, and then maybe we can talk about why they're very individual to, and very susceptible to rider speed and rider size and shape. Sure.
2: So I think the first thing to say is that your body is an absolute mess of cylinders and spears <laughs> and random shapes. And they're
0: everyone- in <laughs> <laughs> <And better laughs> motion too.
2: <laughs> yeah. And they're all moving, which becomes another nightmare to deal with. Um, and it means you're not very aerodynamic. So unlike your bike that has very streamlined profiles and is very well designed, mm-hmm. God did not design you to be aerodynamic in uh, a time shot position. So <laughs> that's the premise of this whole podcast. Believe it or not, Dan, we're not fast. <laughs> but that does mean it's a nice opportunity to actually find some significant improvements. So what tends to happen is you get some pretty big drag, mostly um, form drag. So you separated flows or just low pressure behind, primarily your upper arm, your lower back, your bum, and your legs. Yeah. Um, so you can take advantage of that, or a thing called drag crisis, which is where the boundary layer flowing around a bluff body you turn it from a laminar to a turbulent boundary layer and it tends to stay attached for slightly longer and reduces the size of that wake behind your arm or leg or bum uh however the weights well there's multiple ways to achieve that typically either seams trip seams or rough fabrics are the common ways of going about it which is why Now, in every skin suit you look at in the world now has a ribbed or a dotted fabric or some variety Mm -hmm. on the arms, and same again, obviously on the on the overshoes or socks up to the UCI limit. Uh, So yeah, that's kind of the way to go about it, and it's quite efficient. However, all these fabrics, especially like rib fabrics, people say, "Oh, it's it's the Aero Rib or whatever you want to call it." And there's like tens if not hundreds of them in the world, and they (laughs) all perform differently. You turn one inside out, and suddenly perform really well at forty k an hour, and now it's fabulous at sixty k an hour, or rotate it 90 degrees flip it and add some seams in as well and it's great at a lower speed or whatever it's just a bit of a a nightmare that basically means you just have to throw a lot of darts at at the dartboard to find out what works so what is the optimal fabric tension what is the optimal fabric for your arm so how big is your arm and also then if your arm let's say is uh, 100 mil in diameter but then you're super stretched out and actually, you take a cross section through your arm, you've now got an ellipse, and it might have a characteristic length mm-hmm. of 50 mil, which means suddenly your Reynolds number goes up. Uh, which I think you guys have probably talked about Reynolds a little mm-hmm. bit. But for mm-hmm. those that don't know, effectively, it's a way of how do we simplify it? Uh, a way of uh, looking at flow structures uh, across different speeds and sizes of rider. So, um, it's a, from a skin suit perspective, you can pick a fabric that works well in a set range of number, Reynolds numbers, and then look at what num- Reynolds numbers you might achieve in your specific race. Um, so it's just a good way of kind of pinpointing where you need to be looking.
0: And listeners, just so you can appreciate your Reynolds number around your upper arm is going to be different than around your thigh or around your ankle. It's going to be different in different places. And that's why you might see different fabrics in, uh, you know, uh, in an optimized suit in different places. Yeah, exactly that. You want certain fabrics
2: in different areas because you're trying to achieve different things with the flow around there. So you might already have a turbulent flow over your, your over your shoulders and your upper back. So you then might want a very smooth fabric because the boundary layer is already turbulent. You just want to reduce skin friction and keep the flow attached for as, as long as possible. Uh, whereas your leg might be, if you're a sprinter, massive, it could be 300 mil in diameter and even a smooth <laughs> fabric might induce drag crisis anyway. So you might not want a rough fabric there if you're going very fast and you're very big, which is why yeah, a skin suit that's fast on a sprinter at 70k an hour is not going to be quick on a triathlete at 35k an hour. It's uh, horses for courses, as they say. Yeah, right. So Vortec have kind of taken it a few steps beyond. They, they do some really cool stuff with the the arm fabrics that, unfortunately, can't talk about, but I'm sure in a few years' time, it will become a bit more common knowledge. Uh, but then the cool stuff that they do what I can talk about is their computational draping, which is effectively a way of fitting a suit very efficiently to a rider. So uh, there are some manufacturers out there right now who will 3D scan you and say, okay, we know your arm is this size, your leg is this size, your torso is this size. Then we'll adjust the pattern of the suit accordingly so it fits, which is, don't get me wrong, really good. Uh, It's definitely a good step forward on just your bog standards, extra small to extra large. Um, However, what Vortec have done, they 3D scan you in position and then they've built some software that says, "Okay, we know we need to fit you with these fabrics, these speeds, and they need to be at this exact percentage stretch. So we're going to decide where we put the seams and how big each panel of the pattern is going to be so that you get the exact stretch needed without any wrinkles. That is exceptionally cool. Yeah, it's a bit
0: nerdy. (laughs) oh yeah well that's perfectly nerdy
1: so i I remember when we were speaking to kurt about this too he was saying that you put it on initially and uh it's kind of wrinkled and it doesn't really fit right when you're just standing up and then all of a sudden you get onto the bike and it's like flipping a switch where things just straighten out flatten out and it's just all of a sudden feels like this perfect well it is this perfectly fit glove for you but uh, it only works in the one position because that's exclusively what it was designed for
2: Exactly that. And it's so weird when you're not wearing, like you've got this really baggy lower back bum area and you're like, this can't be fast. Oh wait, yeah, it was rapid. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. So that's really cool. And just then beyond that, just for me, it's been a case of optimizing fabrics and seam positions, uh, both in the tunnel and on the track. And that's just been part of the process and really nice to be involved with them that they're keen to do that and say, and look at the CFD and look at what the tunnel says and just correlate between the two because you don't do an hour record in the wind tunnel and you, the data you get is is great, but there always is going to be issues of correlation. Um, I mean, so far, so good. Skin suits especially tend to correlate incredibly well, but other things uh, like hand position and cockpit have had less good correlation, I would say, between the tunnel and the
0: track. Okay. Before we leave skin suits, though, um, Dan, what sort of difference are we talking about? And I'm not. Look, I, I don't want to talk about like a, a, a down parka versus uh, you know a vortex skin suit, but a, a decent skin suit that fits, that's maybe off the rack, um, that is you know that doesn't wrinkle like crazy, certainly doesn't flap, versus something that's that's really optimized. And I'll give you a speed that's say like forty kilometers an hour, uh, forty to forty five. So like very good triathlete speeds. Um, what sort of difference are we looking at between something that's okay off the rack and something that's like really optimized? 7 to 10, watts. (laughs) 7 to 10, yeah, I love the 7 to 10.
2: In CDA terms, I would say between
0: 0.05 and 0.1 is achievable. Okay, wow, okay, not once, not, not nothing at all, wow.
2: Yeah, it does. It does vary hugely. And the problem, I think, becomes more of a problem when you're a professional athlete who's done some testing and some optimization, because inevitably you optimize around the skin suit or the fabrics that you've got. So you may make a change in pad width or armrest height or whatever, take your pick. And then you are effectively optimizing around the flow structures that are created by that skin suit and that helmet. And then suddenly you move to another skin suit or another helmet, and then you effectively should re-optimize, not just test that one scenario uh, yeah. and say, it was slower and let's spin it off. Sometimes you have to take one step back to go two steps forward, but it's knowing when is the right time to do that. And, and with what skin into and what helmet, which is obviously where a bit of experience comes into play.
0: Hmm, that makes sense. Yeah. So anytime you change any one thing, you affect the flow downstream, especially if it's something that's near the front end of the bike, you may change the flow, the, the flow characteristics downstream, and that may change what's the, the optimal solution for, you know, X.
2: Yeah, they they all heavily interact and not always the same as well across riders, but it is the case that you might be at a good optimal right now, but the global optimal might be elsewhere, but you're three or four changes away from that and it's just trying to find the right direction to go in and and find those extra gains. Um, But yeah, if you're confident that you've done the correct testing to end up with a fast skin suit and it might not be there first off, then you make a few changes and you unleash the benefits as it were very cool.
0: Um so uh I want to talk a little bit about about front end and what's happening uh specifically from a kind of from a, a you know watching the triathletes more than the the time trialists uh we are definitely seeing some uh, movement towards shielded forearms and and a little bit of a a little bit more of a high hand position also seeing some you know maybe some narrower elbows and and taller stacks necessarily that we've seen in 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 past years. Um, is that, uh, do you know what's driving that? And it's, is that, um, is that we kind of borne out in evidence? Obviously if these guys are doing it, then there's, there's some reason for it. Yeah. It primarily is is going to be aerodynamics and being able to optimize that front end is the first
2: thing that contacts the airflow. Uh, but also it, it drives everything about how you hold your position. So if you end up with, I mean, the primary thing is integrated aero bars right now, everyone's going down that route mm-hmm. being able to support yourself both through a good supporting armrest but also full support on your forearm means it's a whole lot easier to hold what is inevitably quite an aggressive position for most riders so that's that's kind of one thing um but yeah the second side is the adjustment and being able to to make all those changes to continually improve your position because triathletes have cottoned on to that that you need to test 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 and i mean ditlev was a prime example of that he was pretty dialed um yes uh, the danes with uh, in fact, it was. I think it was Toph Madsen. He he did all his
0: his positional work with Ditlev. Oh really? He put that guy put on a show. If you could, if you could only learn to grab bottles on the on the course, then he'd be even he'd be <laughs> further ahead. I think. Yeah, I was laughing
2: at that. Spent <laughs> far time on the on the valley and not enough time on his technical skills. Right, um, but yeah, it's. Uh, there is so many, so much to be gained from that aside of just the aerodynamics of integrated cockpits, but the ability to make all those changes and adjustments a lot quicker. And that was one thing that drove our product with WatchUp and the animal extensions that we knew everyone's going to the track now or to the wind tunnel or in your case, obviously CFD as well with, with Stack. So if you can make a change 50% quicker, then suddenly you're ending up with a few extra runs in your test run and you can find those gains a whole lot faster. So making sure that you had every axis of adjustment dialed off is, it was, it's was hard work. Don't get me wrong. The last 18 months of development in that figuring out, okay, well you want to be able to change stack irrespective of, changing anything else, but then you want to change toe in you want to change the extension angle and the pad width and the extension width, but they have to be separate from each other. And then you've got to fit all these different ranges of cockpits as well, because everyone's bolt spacing is different. Everyone's riser stack is different. And it's, it's a bit of a nightmare trying to make a universal setup that also keeps all those adjustment options open. Uh, but then once you've got them, it means that you can really find a good optimal very, very quickly. And I think that has been my biggest gain as well. And I think the same in the team that we can go into an aero test. Might be might be two hours of track time, which for us in the UK is about 300 quid. But if you can do another three or four tests in that, then suddenly you can really get optimal very quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah and especially like to your point of of having to constantly test and um, I'm sure listeners by now are getting the appreciation for if you do one optimally you're going to have to do a bunch of these test runs um and being able to as you say shift things around quickly makes that process a lot more economical and a lot faster so even if you're you know you may be spending a little bit a little bit more money downstream or upstream on a, on a product that allows you to do that um it ends it potentially ends up saving you a ton of time and money
2: yeah, it's one of those kind of investments in the future, and a lot of people kind of go, "How much for a pair of extensions?" And you go, "Well, aside of just the aerodynamic improvement of the extensions, which is actually still good pounds per watt or value for money, whatever you want to call it." Yeah, but then you actually end up with a much greater opportunity to optimize. Uh, okay, you've obviously got to create that environment and that scenario where you can, but then other things are coming to the fore as well. Obviously, Aero Sensors now, uh, Aero Lab, and No Show, and other coming to others coming to the market. So. I think it's kind of democratizing the error testing and people in the next few years will really realize the benefit of having a broad range of adjustment.
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting problem. Um, And one one question that I've always wrestled with is whether the general public, once you start to get the access to these tools, whether the general public is able to effectively use them. Um, And this is something I think the industry in general has struggled with because I know Aerolab and uh, Nocio have different approaches to this, where Notcio gives you the the equipment and a general idea of how to use it, but Aerolab prefers to consult directly. Um, so it is a bit of a challenge, for sure, interpreting the results and making sure you have good test data. Um, but do you see a future where these these kind of sensors can end up in the hands of the average person and can be used effectively by the average person?
2: It's a hard one, <laughs> in short. Um, I- it's possible, but it's, it's very tough because you're measuring so many more variables uh, than, for example, like a power meter, you've got torque and cadence and that's about it. And even that took a while to crack and get to a good level. And then suddenly you add in airspeed and all the uh, elevation issues, which is the biggest problem across all of them, I think. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to do well. It's not impossible, but it's going to take somebody to really put some thought and effort into it. And no share obviously trying, and I've got good experience with them, and they've been very receptive to a lot of our ideas that we've thrown over the fence of, like, if you really thought about doing this, this, or this? Instead, it might help with how the user uses it or just with the general data quality. But trying to get it to be a plug-and-play unit is is going to take some asking, which is why I think Lab have gone down that route of purely consulting. I think it's a lot easier to trust someone with some experience who is using it every other week versus Joe Bloggs, who buys it from the local bike shop, goes home, wants to put it on right outside with three different setups and have a number on their phone that tells them which is the quickest, which is not really ever going to be the case.
1: I think that's what people are actually looking for is this sensor where you don't have to do the analysis yourself. Because um, believe it or not, not everyone wants to be an engineer. Um, so <laughs> no. it's, uh, it is definitely a big challenge. And... Yeah, I mean, you're also reliant on, like you said, using other technologies like a power meter, which did take a while to crack. So the accuracy of your power meter will directly impact the accuracy of your aero sensor. And the accuracy of your elevation measurement will directly impact your your measurements there as well. So there's so many things, and it's very difficult to isolate all the variables. Um, For example, you could go from... Uh, a nice smooth concrete surface to a rough asphalt and have like a huge change in the, the rolling resistance as well. And I know Aerolab does a bit of work to help isolate that, but uh, it's not a trivial problem to to solve all of that in one go. And it takes a lot of testing and a lot of isolation of variables. But uh, yeah, a power meter is great because you can just hop on the bike and as long as it's got the zero offset done properly, you're, you're pretty much good to go. But an aero sensor will, at least not for a long time, ever be like that.
2: Yeah, which is a bit of a shame, but there is huge benefits to those who buy into it, right? Because you you drop a thousand pounds on a sensor and then, okay, you've got to probably spend a good few weeks of pulling your hair out and going, well, this didn't work or that sensor dropped out (laughs) or whatever else. And then once you get a handle on it, it's so Mm -hmm. rewarding that you can just go out and do testing in like your winter rides, zone two rides, changing wheels or whatever you want to do. And it just means that you find those gains a whole lot quicker than everyone else who's saving up to go to the wind tunnel saving up to go for a drone test and I guess I'm putting myself out of business because that is <laughs> one thing that what shop do but um, I do think it's a good thing for the general public to become more educated and to be able to do their own testing uh, just yeah it's just going to take time to get there and power meters are exactly the same right 20 years ago they were terrible I mean mm-hmm. in some ways they definitely have improved in some ways not so much there's been a bit of a race to the bottom for the cheapest power meter which is I don't think what the market should want but Obviously, it's it's driven from somewhere and people want to buy 200-pound power meters. I'd prefer to spend, well, a whole lot more than that uh, on a power meter that I can absolutely trust and gives me everything that I want.
0: Right. No, that makes sense, and I, I like my experience has been similar. I actually, this is well, this has been a weird year, uh, but uh, I I've had earmarked a ton of uh, testing time this year that never happened because of COVID and you know my kids at home. Um, but uh, yeah, it's something that that I've uh, because I obviously have a no show device is something that I, I've been meaning to to brush up on myself. But I, I kind of agree with Andrew. I don't know that it's uh, it's ever going to get to the point without some heavy kind of you know AI involvement um and you know growth in that industry i don't think it's going to get to the point where it's it's as easy to use as a power meter and then honestly power meters aren't easy to use i coach you know I, primarily what i do is coaching and um and interpreting power is not straightforward like you can you you know if you've got a good unit you can trust the numbers but what do you what you do with those numbers um is you know it takes a little bit of uh, of uh, of knowledge and understanding of how to use the, those watts that you see on the screen in training and in racing. Yeah, it's it's more about the interpretation
2: than it is about the numbers there, isn't it? And it's much the same with the arrow. It's just a black box. It's just saying faster or slower, hopefully. Um, and then <laughs> what you do next is is obviously up to you uh, or up to your coach. Uh, I do think it's an incredibly useful tool on the velodrome where obviously things are a lot more controlled. Elevation is largely not an issue. Uh, as Wind t- isn't really a thing. And conditions are a whole lot more consistent, which means testing wise, you can get some absolutely fabulous data out indoors. Mm-hmm. And it's been so useful for myself personally, and then also with who what bike testing with Ribble and obviously with the Danish Federation as well. It's just it is a great tool indoors. That's not their primary market and it's not where they've they've aimed their efforts, but it is it is great. And effectively it's, it's a data logger at the end of the day. It's what you would have in any motorsport car um, in the world. They're, they're logging all their different variables and inputs and you're doing the exact same thing with the no-show and you can just take it out in a raw csv and if you're that way inclined run your own numbers and use your own physics but it's it's just a really useful tool i think in general it just um isn't quite there for the public yet
0: i mm-hmm. oh, agreed well, Dan, this has been a, a really awesome chat, and it's also I was uh, I almost never do this because uh, usually I'll go through the the show and make notes, but I've been taking notes as we've been talking, mostly because I want to ask you a bunch of follow up questions, um, and uh, I hope you'll, uh, you'll you'll agree to come on the show and uh, come back on the show and and answer some of those questions for us. Maybe after you've done your. Uh, you, after you've done your bid and uh, we can talk mm-hmm. about how it went yeah. I think that would be a good
1: one I would even be interested in talking about the psychology of that because we kind of touched on that a little bit for how the uh, the pain is and staying in the same position all the time but just what you have to do in order to get your mind over a one- hour effort that's all <laughs> out.
2: Uh, I actually do num well, calculations just all the time riding on the road or on the track I don't know why I don't it's me being a weird nerdy engineer but um, <laughs> Yeah, keeping track of where I am or what power I'm likely to be doing at this speed or anything like that. It's, yeah, that's just the way I get through it. Um, I don't think <laughs> we'll probably do that, but yeah.
0: So you don't sing like I sing kids' songs because like my brain is basically is become a like a repository for for children's music and now Christmas music because you know that's that's the season. So I find that when I'm in a really tough spot, it, I don't try to do this, but it just comes unbidden to me. I will sing like the same verse of some. You know, some Fred Penner song for all of our Canadian, uh, Canadian kid li- song listeners. Uh, so some some verse of that's of one of his songs or something similar, and gets stuck in my head, and it just gets repeated over and over again. So That's me.
1: You'd think that that kind of music would make the time last longer, though. Or longer. <laughs> I don't
2: know. It's just it's a distraction. Yeah, you need something, definitely something to go through your head. Uh, I haven't quite thought that bit through. I mean, in the practice hour, I just had friends all the way around the track just cheering me on. But with COVID, that's oh, nice. um, a little harder to achieve. So it might be, uh, might need something else.
1: So uh, just a quick touch point. Maybe we can, after the the effort, we can look at it more. But uh, what do you find Or how much of a benefit do you find having friends and having cheering is versus having a quiet circumstance or quiet velodrome? Because that's going to be a huge change this year compared to previous attempts.
2: I definitely think there's something there that myself personally, I feel accountable to a performance if everyone's watching. But then nonetheless, the result is going to go out there. So I think that'll be in my head. It's not something you can hide away of like, oh, that didn't go so well. Uh, We'll just bury that one um so I think irrespective that will be in my head but having another yeah 20 people in the stands would be so much better it's the last 10 minutes when it all kind of it hits a crescendo the first half an hour is a walk in the park relatively speaking or it should be a walk in the park if you have done it right um so I it could be make or break it could be another 20-30 meters and that's that's all it might be um it's it's definitely a benefit to have people
0: there Oh, I bet I bet there's a, I mean it's it's a well it's a well studied um, kind of psych, sports psychology effect of the uh, the you know the group effect or the or the audience effect um, there's there's some pretty good robust research that it, it is performance enhancing
2: yeah I always try and have people in like the team car behind me when I'm doing time trials just especially people that mean something to me because you feel more accountable and more willing to really box yourself um, and then the other thing actually I got from What's the book called now? Uh, Endure by Alex Hutchinson. You guys uh-huh. have read it. Uh, and he was saying that smiling during endurance efforts is, is really good. So I write on my thumbs, on my left thumb, I write arrow, On my right one, I write smile. So I've got to remind- doesn't
0: that, that doesn't mess up your aerodynamic drag, your CDA. Drag, <laughs> like not, not, the- not one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, of course. Um, Dan, again, thank you so much for this. This was uh, a, a true treat for for me and uh, I, I bet for for some of our listeners. We have, uh, I mentioned that we were going to have you on the show to some of our some of our regulars like uh, uh, Pierre Facompre from Look Cycles. And uh, he was like, oh, I'm really going to look, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. He goes, There's, uh, I, I usually listen to most of your episodes and then sometimes I listen to them twice. And I think this is going to be one that I'll listen to twice. So uh, Pierre, shout out to you for that note. Um, and uh, <laughs> listeners um, as always thank you very much for, uh, for tuning in and um, if you like the show tell your friends tell them what you've learned and uh, give us a rating and a review on uh, iTunes Spotify or wherever you uh, listen to your podcasts thanks everyone
2: awesome thanks for having
0: me Sorry guys, I have to shut it off because there's like a battle royale going on upstairs. I don't know if you can hear it. There's like I'm, I can hear I'm a little listening. bit of it. Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting text messages from from my my partner. like, are you done yet? And so I I usually I usually don't wrap it up that quickly. But I was like, okay, sorry fellas. Um, you guys, what's that for your own safety? <laughs> for my own like mental health.